2007, November 26. Today is Lecture 42, Asteroids and Meteorites. Okay, so let's go. We've already finished with most of the major denizens of the solar system, but now we're getting down to the small stuff, or at least the relatively small stuff. Today, I want to start again, go back to the inner solar system, to some of the large bits of rocky stuff that we've been ignoring all up into this time, the asteroids, and to a lesser degree, the meteorites. The key ideas today are to define what I mean by asteroids. These are small bodies of the inner solar system. They're primarily rocky bodies. Most of them are found in an asteroid belt, sometimes called the main belt, that lies between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. We're going to see that the orbits in this region are very strongly influenced by the gravity of Jupiter. This is one of these examples where this idea of orbital resonances and orbital dynamics comes into play. We can actually learn a great deal about the asteroid belt as a consequence of this. The composition we see is primarily rock and metal, or a mix of the two, and a lot of carbonaceous material. We're out in the frost line zone, so we actually see some of the raw materials out of which rocky planets were built. If I have time, given all the announcements and other stuff, we may get down to meteorites at the end of class. This is not as important a topic for today as is the general stuff about the asteroid belt. The meteorites are basically, meteoroids are basically pieces of the small pieces of rock that have been busted off asteroids that eventually, or fall off comets, that eventually wake their way through the Earth's atmosphere. And they are they often seen as bright meteors streaking through our atmosphere, or they actually form rocks or chunks of metal you can pick up off the ground known as meteorites. And we'll get to, a, we'll get to that if we actually have a little time towards the end. We'll leave my options open. So today, the main topic is going to be the asteroids. This is the leftover bits of raw material from the formation of the inner parts of the solar system. So what about the discovery of the asteroids? Where do these come from? Well, I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail about this, but the basic idea is that when people began to study the solar system in and through the, the 18th century, they noticed that there was a general numerical progression in the planets outward. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars formed a group out to about 1.5 AU, and then all of a sudden you had a gigantic jump, and you had to get out to about 5.2 astronomical units before you hit Jupiter. So you had Jupiter at about 5, Saturn at about 10, and then in the late 18th century, the planet Uranus was discovered out at around 20 astronomical units. Now again, I'm using round numbers, but you can sort of see a geometric progression there. 5, 10, 20, the next one's out at 30, which is the discovery of Neptune, which was not really going to happen until the following century. So by the, by the, just before the year 1800, there were six known planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Sorry, seven known planets. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. And there was a gigantic sudden gap between Venus and Jupiter, um, between Mars and Jupiter. And that bothered people. It really started bothering people that there was something missing in that gap. And people played various number games. Some of you may read something in various books about something called the Titius Bode Law. This was one of these little number games to see, oh, well, the planets are where they are because of some mystical number properties. And there was a missing planet somewhere around two and a half astronomical units. Well, in the, in the late 1700s, people really took this very seriously. And in fact, a, an Austrian astronomer by the name of von Zach actually got together a whole bunch of astronomers, what he called his planetary police, to actually patrol with telescopes the space between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter, looking for this unseen, this previously unknown, possibly small planet. 
Well, the search is actually paid off in the first day of the 19th century when a, a rather unexpected member of this group, a Sicilian astronomer, a, a Catholic priest by the name of Giuseppe Piazzi, setting up an observatory in Palermo on the island of Sicily, discovered the, plant, the um, object Ceres at a distance of 2.8 astronomical units, right where some of these number rule games said it should be. This was a really <coughs> electrifying result, but... It was small. It was really small. Subsequent observations have shown that Ceres is about 914 kilometers in diameter. So this was a whole lot smaller than people were used to thinking about planets. It's way smaller than the moon, for example. Very quickly thereafter, over the next couple of years, three more of these things were found. Pallas, Vesto, and Juno. All of them were given Greek names. They were all found within this region between Mars and Jupiter. But then some observations began that kind of made people scratch their heads and say, oh, what's going on here? In particular, William Herschel, who was the discoverer of Uranus, noted that Ceres and Pallas actually were in orbit so close to each other that they might, in fact, exchange orbits over time. They actually would have a close gravitational encounter and exchange orbits. And so he coined the term asteroid to, to describe these things. The reason why he called them asteroid is because even in the biggest telescopes of the day, in the early 19th century, these things appeared at images like little stars rather than disks, which is what you see if you look at the planets. You see a round glowing disk. Even, even Uranus and later Neptune show a glowing disk of light. But the asteroids always looked starlike. And so Herschel very, very presciently said there's something very different going on here. Now, interestingly, apropos of some recent debates, people actually thought for a long time these were new planets. They were added to the roster of planets. And up through about the 1870s or so, as many as 100 of these things were found. Now, about 1848, so many were being found that people started saying, you know, we're piling up an awful lot of these things. The number of planets is getting up to 20, 30, 40 planets. We've got to get this back in control these asteroids really are much smaller and much different than the planets. Maybe we shouldn't call them planets. And so people actually stopped calling the asteroids planets in kind of the middle of the 19th century, and if you will, demoted them. We saw the same kind of argument going on nearly 200 years later over the question of Pluto in the outer solar system. Well, by 2007, by, by this day, telescopic surveys, primarily photographic or now electronic imaging surveys, of the space between Jupiter and, uh, and uh, Mars have found something in excess of 100,000 of these objects, which we now call asteroids. 30,000 of these, or actually more than 30,000 of these, have sufficient information to actually plot a significant orbit. They've been observed more than about 200 or so times, 100 or so times. In fact, I did a, a quick count yesterday through the latest version of the Minor Planet Center's orbit catalog and something like 50,000 asteroids have had more than 100 observations, giving you good enough arcs to plot out a whole orbit. Some more 60,000 further of those have enough data that you could eventually get an orbit, but they've only had a handful of observations. Now, one of the neat things about asteroids is, is that people gave up really early trying to put Greek and Roman god names onto the asteroids because you, you were just going to run out. And they said, oh, we're going to stop this. And they started naming them after other things. And the convention has now come that if you actually learn the orbit of an asteroid, you are actually allowed by the IAU to suggest a name for it. And if you want, 
you can name it after yourself. Now, there are some rules. It can't be a politician or, some, or a business or something like that for like 100 years, but, and it can't be crude in any language, but, but basically you can name them after places, people. They kind of discourage naming it after your cat, stuff like that. Most of the asteroids, some 90% of the asteroids that we see in the solar system reside in a very well-defined zone in between Jupiter and, and Mars called the main belt. It lies between about 2.1 and 3.2 astronomical units, which, as we'll see in a moment, is actually bounded on the inner edge and the outer edge by the 4 to 1 and 2 to 1 orbital resonance with Jupiter. So the very first thing that jumps out at, about you, at you at, about the asteroid distribution is it knows something about the gravity of Jupiter. Jupiter is playing a significant role, if you will, in sculpting, gravitationally sculpting the main belt. The tilts of these things, most of them are in the main down in the plane or within about 15 degrees of the ecliptic plane. So they actually form a kind of a fat belt. And, and the amount of tilt is about as I can show here, 15 degrees up or down out of the plane. Some of them can get as high as 30 degrees, but that's a small minority. The other thing is that some of them can be fairly eccentric. A lot of them are in circular orbits, but some of them are in eccentricities up to about 0.15. So we're getting up to things which are much more eccentric than Mercury, for example. The average distance of these asteroids is about five kilometers. And a typical size is about one kilometer in size. And they're kind of irregular, funny, lumpy looking things. I have with me a, a scale model of an asteroid. Uh, it's actually a very nice Ohio Kennebec potato. It's an irregular, lumpy looking thing. It's covered with a slight dusty regolith. If this was a one, this is about a one kilometer, take this as a model for a one kilometer size asteroid. Okay, so this is probably the most common size asteroid in the main belt. Where, if I wanted to make a scale model of the asteroid belt, would the next of these spud asteroids be? Okay, so it's 10 kilometers, one kilometer size, but it's scaled down to 10 centimeters. So where would the next one be? Do I have to take it back to the end of the room, or I mean, you think I have to take it out sort of somewhere on campus or somewhere out of town? Anyone got any ideas? Can do the math in their head quick. Well, if you do the scaling, the nearest other spud would be 500 kilometers away. So I would almost have to basically take it up to Chicago or down to Nashville in order to begin to build a scale model of the asteroid, the main belt. So this is really at odds with kind of the popular conception of the asteroid belt. We think of the asteroid belt kind of like, oh, I don't know, there's really exciting computer-generated scenes from the you know, Star Wars movies where the spacecraft are all zipping around among the twirling asteroids. Asteroid belts aren't that thick. If that was that thick, we'd never get a spacecraft out to the outer solar system. We'd be stuck in the inner solar system. In fact, the asteroid belt is pretty empty. Now, I want to emphasize that right away because I'm about to show some pictures which are going to make the asteroid belt look much more densely populated than it is, and that's because I have to draw a point at least one pixel wide. And one pixel on the scale of my screen here is many, many tens and hundreds of thousands of kilometers. So... Beware that you know if asteroids were spuds, they'd be roughly spaced like major cities in the United in the middle of the United States, not like you know swirling rocks in a uh, George Lucas special. So here's the position of the asteroids. This again is a plot we've seen before a lot. It plots the mass on the vertical axis versus the semi-major axis of the orbit of the body along the horizontal axis. Of course, up here are the terrestrial planets: Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. The Jovian planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, the gas and the ice giants. The giant moons, the moon, the four Galilean satellites of Jupiter, Titan, and Triton. 
in the dwarf planet Ceres, Pluto, and Eris. So the first thing to note is that the largest and first of the asteroids found is Ceres, is in fact also the only of the terrestrial type dwarf planets that we know of so far. These green dots here <coughs> define the asteroid belt. In fact, I've shown the delineation of the main belt. You'll notice there are two other groups of asteroids on the inside and on the outside of the red lines that I've drawn are the boundaries of the main belt, which are roughly defined by the 2 to 1 and 4 to 1 orbital resonance with the, with the motion of planet, the planet Jupiter. This outer edge makes, an object in this outer edge makes two orbit for every one orbit of Jupiter. An object on this inner edge makes four orbits for every one of Jupiter. So they're an exact whole number ratios. This little group of here forms another such body we'll see in a moment. And this group here at five astronomical units are the Trojan asteroids that we've already met before we talked about the Dance of the Planets many weeks ago. Now you can see that many of these asteroids are pretty small compared to the mass of the Earth. Ceres, Juno, Vesta, and sort of the top ten are all barely up around one one hundred thousandth or so of the mass of the Earth. Whereas most of the mass of asteroids that we know of are really tiny. They're getting down to a billionth or one ten billionth the mass of the Earth. They're chunks of rock, basically. Here's a plot of the basic denizens of the inner main belt as we would see them in a snapshot in time. Uh, we see the main belt of asteroids here, roughly between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. Again, bounded by the 4 to 1 and the 2 to 1, although in this plot, that edge looks awfully fuzzy, but that's because some of these asteroids are on elliptical orbits, which carry them a little further or closer than the actual edge in astronomical units. You can kind of discern that this belt is not perfectly filled in, but it's kind of motley. Of course, we get the Trojan asteroids, which are in the one-to-one resonance with Jupiter and actually share Jupiter's orbit at 5.2 AU, the Greeks in the leading Trojan zone, and the Trojans in the trailing Trojan zone. And these orange dots here are a group of objects known as the Hildas, which we've seen before. These are actually also resonant objects. And we see the positions of the Earth, Mercury, and the Sun. Now, some named asteroids. You can name an asteroid. And the asteroids have a different name than we've seen before. They have a number as well as a name. For example, the very first asteroid ever discovered is now called 1 Ceres. The second one is called 2 Pallas. And then 3, 4, 5, and so on, up to some very, very large numbers now. For example, I've, I've highlighted in yellow five asteroids, 243 Ida, 253 Matilda, 433 Eros, 651 Gaspra, and 25143 Itokawa. The stars there tell you that those are the only asteroids that have been passed, or in the case of Eros and Itokawa, landed upon by spacecraft. So they're the only five for which we actually have some very detailed information from spacecraft visits. Now, you're not just simply limited to the names of places or the names of, of old Greek gods and goddesses, for example. Asteroids 18, 14, 15, and 18 have been named for the great trio of classical musicians, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. Classical music, not your gig? Okay, how about 4147 Lennon, 4148 McCartney, 4149 Harrison, and 4150 Starr? So the Beatles have their own asteroids. Not to mention 2620 Santana, yeah, that's Carlos. Eric Clapton gets 4305, even Frank Zappa gets 3834, and upon his death, the late great Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead is 442, 4442 Garcia, making all the deadheads just as happy as can be. And there's many, many other names. I don't have one. 
I haven't discovered one yet. So I still don't have an asteroid named after me. I don't even think there's an asteroid for Ohio State. We should probably try to do something about that if it doesn't exist. Anyway, so that's all the fun and games of naming things. But let's get back to the talking about the asteroid's orbital properties. The first clue that something interesting is going on is the fact that the main belt is so tightly confined between these two orbits, which are very, very close, in fact, very sharp-edged with the 4 to 1 and 2 to 1 resonance of Jupiter. In fact, the main belt can be thought of as being confined between this Jupiter orbital resonance. So, for example, in the outer edge of the asteroid belt, objects in that outer edge complete two orbits for every one of Jupiter. On the inner edge, it's four orbits for every one of Jupiter. Now, in addition, a man by the name of Kirkwood in the 19th century, even though he had only about 90 or 100 asteroids to go work with, noticed there was a deficit of asteroids with a certain semi-major axis. And he noticed that that deficit corresponded to exact whole number ratios of the orbit of Jupiter. The largest of these gaps was, in fact, at the 3 to 1 resonance with Jupiter. Objects which would have been in that gap would complete three orbits for every one of Jupiter, but there was nothing there. It was empty. Furthermore, there were gaps at the 5 to 2 and 7 to 3 resonances and an even smaller one at the 9 to 4 resonance. So we're getting into some pretty high order number resonances here. What's going on? Well, the other thing that, that draws your attention is in addition to these gaps now called the Kirkwood gaps in the main belt, just outside of the main belt, there are two other, there are other clusterings of asteroids that are clearly being confined into particular resonances by Jupiter. In particular, the Hildas, named for the largest of these asteroids, Hilda, uh, something, something Hilda, I forget the number. Hildas are in a three to two resonance with Jupiter. A Hilda asteroid completes three orbits for every two orbits of Jupiter. The Floras are on the other side, on the Mars side of the main belt. They're in a seven to two resonance. A Flora completes seven orbits for every two of Jupiter. And of course, we've already met the Trojans, which are another of these resonant families. They're in the one to one resonance with Jupiter. Now, why are these things trapped in resonance? If they'd simply formed in place, there may be some processes which would drive you into or out of resonances, but that doesn't explain it. However, it's very, what we're seeing now is as the solar system has evolved from its formation, Jupiter has largely flung other objects out of the solar system that have had close encounters with it. We talked a little bit about slingshot orbits for spacecraft. If you slingshot an object out of the solar system, you rob some orbital energy from Jupiter. If you take energy away from an orbiting object, you move it closer to the sun. So over the early, especially in the early part of the solar system, during the first billion years or so, during that epoch of heavy bombardment, Jupiter was as likely to toss something out or more likely to toss a, an asteroid or a chunk of rock out of the solar system as it was to knock one into the inner solar system. And so that net loss of energy meant that over the first almost billion years, the life of the solar system, Jupiter, from its formation, slowly migrated inwards. It actually moved from where it formed in towards the sun a bit. As it moves in towards the sun, objects get into those resonances, they get trapped, and they get swept up and move along in the resonances. As Jupiter moves along more and more, more and more objects get swept into those resonances, and you eventually build these very, very strong rings of orbits. Now, these empty places, the gaps at resonances, is actually something of a problem. Why is it they're gaps and not pileups? And the answer has to do with the fact that the asteroids themselves also gravitationally interact among each other, and those interactions overall are somewhat chaotic. 
and it uses the sense chaotic in the sense of very non-linear dynamics. Now, the exact mechanism is not well understood, and it's still an object of current research, but some computer models of the gravity in the Jupiter-Sun asteroid system show that within the main belt, the interactions among the asteroids actually work in the opposite way, and you get clearing resonances rather than confining resonances. So here's a, another example where we see two things that we're expecting to see in the solar system. One, the sculpting of orbital groups by gravitational interactions primarily through orbital resonances, these whole number coincidences of the number period of, an, of a big object with a bunch of smaller objects. And the second, that, that leaving it, the finding a lot of these resonant objects, either resonant orbits or resonant clearing gaps, is a reminder that the solar system is not just a clockwork that was set in motion and has been going like that for four and a half billion years, but it has been slowly evolving dynamically. And the fact of that evolution, that dynamical evolution, is written in the patterning of orbits that we see. If Jupiter had not migrated the way it would, we would not see as strong resonances. So let's see some of the data. <clears throat> Here's kind of like a grade curve for asteroids, except now what I'm plotting is the number of asteroids that are, have a particular semi-major axis, A, for their orbit. This is based on data. This is the most recent data from the Minor Planet Center. This plot was just generated over the weekend here. And it shows a couple of pileups here and these gaps. These are the Kirkwood gaps. The first thing we notice is that the very strong inner group of asteroids is very strongly bounded by the 4 to 1 and 2 to 1 resonances, just like advertised. You really don't find a lot of objects outside those regions and notice these numbers up here are getting up to about 15,000 objects in one of these narrow little bins. There's a lot of objects in this plot. These little pileups outside of the main belt correspond to the well-known resonant families. The Trojans in the 1 to 1 resonance, the Hildas in the 3 to 2 resonance, and this rather populous group called the Floras in the 7 to 2 resonance. These gaps are at the 3 to 1 resonance is this big gap, and then there's a series of con consecutive gaps at the 5 to 2 and 7 to 3 resonance. This little dip here is not a statistical bit of noise. That's actually the 9 to 4 resonance. That was also one of Kirkwood's original gaps. Now, this plot only shows you this kind of histogram. There is a way to plot the asteroid orbits. Remember, we saw the plot of the asteroid orbits before. It looked like this kind of a white cloud. But you can play a trick where you can project the orbits what would the orbits be if they were all on perfectly circular orbits confined to the plane of the solar system, rather than being on ellipses with various tilts? Well, I can do that, and I did that with a computer, and you see this really spectacular plot. Here I'm now plotting in astronomical units. Here's the Sun. Here's Jupiter. Here are the Trojans out in Jupiter's orbit, but at those 60-degree points for the Lagrange points, leading and trailing. The Hildas form a very, very well-defined ring of asteroids in this what's called A-lambda space. The lambda here is actually the longitude of the orbit. This is what happens when you take the elliptical orbit, which is at some tilt, and say, give me the equivalent circular orbit in the plane. And the longitude is which way that ellipse tilts around. It's kind of a complex idea. Here are the floras in that 7 to 2 resonance. Again, a very well-defined ring with a very big, obvious gap. You can see in this picture how really sharp-edged the inner and outer edges of the main belt are. This is sort of a dynamical plot, in which I've crushed down all the elliptical orbits to circles. Very clear 
edge at the 4 to 1 and 2 to 1 resonance, and there's that 3 to 1 resonance Kirkwood gap and this series of other resonances in the other Kirkwood gaps. And now you can really see what those gaps look like. Now remember last Wednesday, when we looked at Saturn's rings, we saw a lot of gaps in, in the rings which were due primarily to forcing resonances between, Saturn, between the moons and the ring particles. That same sort of thing is, is written here. That's why the asteroid belt, when plotted in this way, when projected into, cir into notional circular orbits, kind of looks like a ring system in which the sculpting of the orbits is controlled by the resonances. This is a really cool plot. I really like this plot. Okay. Now that brings up this idea of what are called asteroid families. It turns out that the asteroids are not just random chunks of rock grooving around the solar system. They actually, some of them, some subset of them, seem to know something about the dynamics of the others. And they have some relationship to them that bears in their motions some knowledge of the history, the dynamical history of our solar system. Now these groups of orbital objects are known as Hirayama families. They're named for a, for a, a Japanese astronomer from the year 1915 who first began to notice that certain orbits of certain groups of asteroids all kind of knew something about each other. They had similar semi-major axes, similar eccentricities, how, how extended or round they were, and similar tilts with respect to the ecliptic plane, as if they were remembering something about once being part of a bigger object. Now, a different Hirayama families are named for the largest member identified within that dynamical family. There's a famous group, for example, called the Coronis family, named for an asteroid called Coronis, and so forth. That's kind of just a detail, but gives you an idea of how we, how we talk about these things. The origins of these dynamical families are varied. We've already talked about the resonant families, but if you ignore the resonant families for a moment, and you look at those families of asteroids that are not in any one of these resonances, you find a number of them. And what these, what these families are, we think, may be due an idea of the origin of these asteroids. They may have once been part of a larger, perhaps even differentiated body that had a massive catastrophic collision with another large body early in the solar system. That collision shattered the original parent bodies, but it breaking, breaking it into pieces, but all the pieces still had, at the beginning, a common orbit. Now, over time, there's various gravitational tugs from Jupiter. Gravitational tugs, as they go by other members of the asteroid belt, will slowly smear out that relationship, but it's a slow process. And so you can see these as clusters of objects when you look in you know, common groups of semi-major axis and inclination or eccentricity. Now, another of these groups of asteroids that catches our attention are ones that haven't been plotted on that plot are the so-called Earth-crossing asteroids. These are asteroids which have been probably kicked out of the, out of the belt of, uh, main belt by Jupiter's gravity and have gone into orbits that cross through the inner solar system. They cross the orbits of Venus, Mars, and the Earth. These are often referred to as the Apollo group and the Aten group, to name the two largest. These are of particular interest to us because one of these might have our name on it. These are actually the pool of asteroids that could potentially hit the Earth. Here's a very busy plot, but it gives you some idea of how these Hirayama families are confined. You play a game with the semi-major axis and the inclination of the orbit, how it's tilted with respect to the ecliptic plane. If the asteroids were just completely random gunk grooving around the asteroid belt, this would be just a complete wash of scatter of points, and you wouldn't see anything. Instead, what you see is, first of all, you see the gaps 
in the ring. You see the first example of three to one, the, the front edge and the main edge of the asteroid belt. And then you see a whole bunch of groups where there's suddenly a pileup of a common semi-major axis and a common inclination. So for example, Ceres is part of a group, um, the Coronis group I mentioned before, and various other asteroids form these various dynamical families. These are the various Hirayama families that I was talking about. And these may be giving us a snapshot of the very violent dynamics of the birth of the asteroid belt. Here are a current plot. This is from a couple days ago. The, the, op the orbital position, here's the Earth. And here are a bunch of the various Earth-crossing asteroids. You can see this green cloud here, of course, is the, outer, the inner edge of the main belt. And the floor is kind of grooving around in there. Um, but you can see there really aren't too many asteroids that extend all the way in towards the orbit of Mercury or Venus, but a bunch that cross around in here. Needless to say, objects of this size down to the size of a house are of great interest. And there are a series of projects which have been put together to actually look for and catalog the motions of all of these with the hope that we can tell when one's going to get just a little too close, at which point we're going to have to get our act together and figure out what we're going to do about it. Maybe send out a rocket and push on it a little bit and shove it out of the way. Maybe light off a nuke in front of it and nudge it out of the way in a somewhat less polite way. But these are certainly objects of future interest to us. Well, that's, that's sort of what, what's going on orbitally with the asteroids. Let's now sort of step back a bit and have a look at the individual asteroids themselves. Let's ask what their properties are. The largest of the asteroids is Ceres. It's, this is a nice picture of it from the Hubble Space Telescope. It's about 914 kilometers across and about two ten-thousandths the mass of the Earth. Ceres is by far the largest of the asteroids. In fact, it is classified as a dwarf planet. The reason it's classified as a dwarf planet is that it is spherical in shape. It's probably shaped itself by gravity. It's in a, it is not the dominant object in its, in its orbit, so it can't qualify as a planet, but it seems to be a nicely well-integrated body. Now, this picture is very interesting. We don't have a very clear picture of Ceres. This is the best picture we can get from the ground. You notice these somewhat lighter and redder areas. In fact, it's possible that Ceres is a little bit icy. Remember, it's, it's out there, 2.8 AU. It's kind of chilly out there, and there, may, there is, in fact, the possibility of a lot of ices. Ceres is the target, as well as another asteroid, Vesta, are the targets of a mission called Dawn, which was recently launched, which is on its way out to the asteroid belt to take a close look. However, once we get past Ceres, everything gets really small really fast. <coughs> Only 100 or so of the main belt asteroids are more than 140 kilometers across. In fact, we know all of the large, bigger than about 10 kilometer objects throughout the solar system at this point, certainly in the main belt zone. But only about 100 are actually sort of big things, but some 1.2 million are about kilometer size. Now, if we add up an estimate of what we think the total population of the main belt plus the various resonant families is, and we add them all together, the asteroids only add up to about six ten-thousandths the mass of the Earth. That's enough mass to have made one really poopy little dwarf planet and not much else. You, don't, you haven't even gotten to the moon yet. Okay? So these things are really small. So there was an old idea, which was a, a staple of science fiction for a long time, that the asteroid belt was a planet that got broken apart by some catastrophe or something. Well, no, actually not. There isn't enough material in the asteroid belt to build a poopy little dwarf planet, much less a whole big planet like the Earth or Mars. So there really isn't a whole lot going on out there. 
Enough for a small body, but, but not much. If you do the numbers for the top four asteroids in the asteroid belt, uh, Ceres, Juno, Vesta, and Hygieia are the four largest asteroids. They contain more than 50% of the mass of the entire main belt. So the size drops really, really fast when you go to the asteroid belt. It's mostly a debris field is really what it is. Oh, there it is. Here again, for scale, is our moon, a ground-based picture of Ceres, and a ground-based picture of Vesta. And the other two actually don't have clear pictures of them. You can see that when you go from Ceres, which is round, to Vesta, you're all of a sudden out of round. These things are, when you get down to kind of like the number two, number three, number four asteroid, they're not big enough to have gravity shape them into a spherical shape. So what we're seeing are, for the most part, undifferentiated or formally differentiated fragments. The asteroids primarily are kind of like my potato. They're irregular in shape. They're far too small for gravity to make them spherical. And even Ceres isn't perfectly spherical. It's only sort of semi-round. Now, as they rotate, as they orbit around, they also rotate, although rotate, when you look like one of these things, is to kind of tend to tumble end over end in a, in a kind of funny fashion. They sort of turn around their long axis and they tumble end over end. So they're very, very complicated motions. Most of these have rotation periods of around nine hours, about a little under half the rotation period of the Earth and Mars. And that's pretty common. However, various collisions have occurred in which something will whack one of these sort of you know, space spuds upside the head here. If they whack them off center in the right direction, they can start spinning really fast. Some of them have periods which are as small as three hours, which have been spun up, Others have been whacked in the opposite direction that they rotate, and they rotate very slowly, some as slow as three or four weeks to complete one tumble end over end. The fact that we see this large distribution with a large tail of very, very fast and very, very slow rotations is telling us that there have been a lot of asteroid-asteroid collisions even over the course of the history of the solar system. So despite the fact that one one-kilometer spud is in Columbus, while the other one is, oh, say, in Nashville. It's still possible that when you have four and a half billion years of dynamical history to play with, you will get a significant number of collisions. The compositions of these asteroids are primarily rocky material. There are three types. They're rather imaginatively named the C-type, S-type, and M-type. C-type are carbonaceous. These are very, very dark materials composed primarily of carbon-bearing materials. But notice that element, carbon. It's one of the rarer elements here in the inner part of the solar system. The inner part of the solar system is mostly silicates, iron, and nickel. Carbon is much more common when you get into the colder reaches of the solar system. So the first thing this tells us is the fact that 75% of the main belt asteroids are of this dark carbonaceous comp composition. We can tell this by looking at their reflection spectrum from the sun and see which light is absorbed out by compounds on the surface. This tells us that they formed out there. They formed out in the colder reaches of the solar nebula, kind of nestling up against the frost line at the places where the first carbonates began to, to condense out, whereas down here on the Earth and so forth, we don't get many carbonates condensing out. So one of the ideas is these carbonates may also contain a lot of ices. In fact, there's a fourth class of asteroids that have been proposed that contain a lot of ices mixed up with the carbon. Why this is important is C-type asteroids getting knocked into the inner solar system and hitting the young Earth 
may have been a source of many of the carbon compounds we see on the Earth, and certainly many of the isis and volatiles. The other type, the S-type and the M-type, are probably related. The silicate S-type are silicaceous, silicon-bearing. They're kind of red in color, and they're consisting of stony material. They look like just like a rock if you picked it up, a typical silicate rock, or maybe a mix of silicate rock and iron, and they form about 16% of the composition of the main belt. A rarer type are the so-called M-type, or metallic. These are much bluer in color, and the idea is that they're, in fact, very iron-rich. They are probably very high density, probably primarily iron and nickel. Now, the rest that make up the last fraction of a percent are just wacko weird stuff. Icy, and then there's one type basically called the Vesta type, which is a class all unto itself. The asteroid Vesta just doesn't really look like any other asteroid. So what's going on? What are these things? Are they rocks? Are they solids? Are they something else? Well, there's two different structures for these things that we found. Some of them, where you can measure their masses using spacecraft passages, and a few of them have small moons, we can measure their densities. Some of them have densities of about 3 to 5 grams per cc. That's halfway between rock and iron, and so that tells us we're dealing with objects which are solids. They're mostly rocky if they're at the low end of 3 grams per cc, and mostly metals if they're up at 5 grams per cc. Well, we've gotten a close look, either with close passes with radar or using spacecraft. They have very heavily cratered surfaces, and they're covered with a deep layer of dusty regolith. They look like pieces of something. The others, however, are really interesting. And these are the ones that are kind of important to know about if we're going to deflect one, is they're not consolidated. They're actually rubble piles held together by their mutual gravity. These give themselves away by their lower density, 1 to 2 grams per cc. Their composition from spectra shows that they're silicon or iron or rock, carbonaceous material, but they shouldn't have a lot of ices, especially the ones that get very close to the sun. The ices should have all volatilized away. So instead, what we're seeing is they've got low density because there's pockets in them. They're basically loose piles of rock. They're aggregates held together, unconsolidated aggregates held together by the mutual gravity of each boulder pulling on every other boulder. So if you went up and smash them with a nuke, that would be bad because you wouldn't deflect it. It would break into, oh, I have one rock heading towards me. Now I have 10,000 rocks heading towards me. That's obviously a problem. So you want to know whether an asteroid coming at you is, is it a rubble pile or solid. You're going to treat it different, right? You can push on a rock. You can't push on a gravel pile. Now, what people think of these things is possibly these things were once solid, but they had an impact big enough to shatter them but not big enough to disperse the pieces. So you break it, but you don't give enough energy for the pieces to escape their mutual gravity. And so you end up with this kind of, well, literally, a rubble pile, a pile of junk. Here's some examples of this. 25143 Itokawa has got a density of about 2.5 grams per cc, and it looks like a big rubble pile. Matilda here, which looks awfully solid, in fact only has a density of 1.3 grams per cc. We flew a spacecraft by this one, so we know its gravity pretty well. This is probably a rubble pile. You just don't see the rough edges because it's covered with regolith. But you can see there's just a huge crater here. That crater is probably the event that shattered it. Now, there's a lot of clues as to what's going on in the asteroids. One of the clues is the silicate and iron-rich asteroids, the fact that I've got a differentiation between silicon and iron, means that they once, once may have been part of a bigger, hotter, molten body that differentiated. The metal sunk to the center, silicates floated to the top, 
And before they got to settle down into a full-fledged dwarf planethood, bam, they got smacked by a gigantic catastrophic impact that blew it apart and blew the silicates in one direction and the iron in another. So you get the shattering collisions. The bigger of these things may in fact be the progenitors of the very, very massive Hirayama families that we just met. The carbonaceous asteroids are probably much more primitive material. They're undifferentiated. And so it's material that never really got differentiated into other stuff. And therefore, these are very interesting because it means most of the asteroid belts never got to consolidate into larger objects and differentiate. So our interest for future exploration and understanding of the solar system is not so much to keep, we keep an eye out for these guys because one of them might hit us, but these may be remnants of the original construction material of the solar system. And so studying those will give us a snapshot of what the raw material out of which the planets were built somewhat four and a half billion years ago may have looked like. So I'm clearly not going to get to meteorites, so scratch that off to final, and I'll see you all tomorrow.